Hi everyone, I'm Joe Huggins and thanks for joining us for the Rocky Mountain Myrick Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Koff, who is a clinical psychologist and has two major roles in the VA. He's the director of the VHA LGBT Health Program, a position he shares with Dr. Jillian Shippard, and he is also the co-director of the South Central Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center, otherwise known as MIREC. In addition, Dr. Koff is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Well, welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Okay, so to get started, um, Michael, can you give our listeners some background, how you came to be where you are today? Uh, sure. It's uh, a bit of a complicated story. I've been in the VA for 26 years now. I did my uh, psychology internship at the New Orleans VA and was hired out of my internship to work at, at New Orleans. Worked half-time in behavioral medicine, mostly in the HIV clinic, and I worked uh, the other half in an inpatient PTSD program at the time. The really nice part about uh, this New Orleans job was the psychology service was very academically focused, and we were strongly encouraged to do research and to publish, and I love that. Um, and I was functioning pretty much as a full-time clinician at the time. In the, by the late 1990s, I was asked to uh, be the education director for this new proposed center, MIREC, um, the soon-to-be director of the MIREC, uh, uh, Greer Sullivan, uh, asked me to play this role. She said she'd looked at uh, CVs from a variety of clinicians across our vision, and mine was the only one uh, that had uh, identified me working in an educational intervention. And uh, so she asked me to play this role. The cool thing was um, that it bought out 25% of my time, which seemed like a huge amount of time uh, then. So I could focus on these education activities. That really shifted my career in a new direction. It gave me um, more of a regional and a, a national stage to play on and put me increasingly in contact with people in the National Mental Health Office. Uh, by 2007, I'd become the co-director of the South Central MIREC. Um, and then in 2015, I gave up my education role with our MIREC, uh, and I'm still the, the co-director. All during this time, uh, I really had two parallel careers. I had what I was doing in the VA, which was focused on veterans and largely uh, educational interventions um, and implementation science. And then there was what I was doing outside of the VA. That was in sexuality and sexual health. Um, because that work wasn't really supported in the VA until about 2011. Things changed very dramatically and rapidly uh, at that time. In 2011, the VA issued 
the first national healthcare directive on transgender health. And Central Office asked uh, me and Jillian Shippard to co-chair the communications rollout work group around that policy. That really meant um, educating the field about this new healthcare directive and uh, working to get the field up to speed in terms of knowledge so they can implement this policy. That involved doing a lot of talks, a lot of uh, trainings around the directive. At this very same time, uh, the military's policy, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, was being repealed uh, in 2011. And suddenly, VA was being asked a lot of questions about what we're doing to address the needs of LGBT veterans. And believe it or not, uh, this was a surprise to us, Jillian and I were the point people for answering those questions. There was nobody else in VA who were subject matter experts in this area. And we use that position uh, to leverage a, an LGBT health program within the Office of Patient Care Services in VA Central Office. And that program office was established in 2012. Wow. We're going to come back, circle back around to the work that you've done in the LGBT office and also your work with uh, the MIREC. But mm -hmm. first, I guess it would be remiss if I didn't um, congratulate you. You were recently awarded the American Psychological Association Division 18 James Basner's Award for Lifetime Achievement. And that's an award that is named in memory of a VA psychologist, James Basner, um, who is a longtime member and a friend of Division 18. And the recipient of the award um, is somebody who demonstrates sustained widespread influences at the highest standard of psychology leadership. And the committee seeks an individual who has given voice to psychology's role in healthcare and who has gained recognition as a leader in advocacy, treatment, research, or education. So congratulations. And maybe Thank tell you. us, oh, what does it mean for you to receive such an award? Uh, well, I can tell you I was uh, quite surprised. Um, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award suggests uh, perhaps you're at the end of your career. <laughs> and I'm not ready to stop yet. Uh, I've joked with folks uh, that I'm so pleased to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award so early in my career. <laughs> I've got a lot more mm -hmm. I want to do. I'm also very, very honored to uh, get this, this kind of award, primarily because it's award from my peers. Division 18 is the, the public service section of APA, and it's made up of largely VA psychologists. So it's quite meaningful to me to get this award. I'm very, very proud of the work that I've done as an educator and as an education leader in the MIREC and as a policy maker and advocate and director of the LGBT health program. And so pleased to see all of the, the changes that I helped facilitate uh, in, in VA. I don't know if you uh, know this, but VA is probably the largest provider of health care to LGBT people in the country. 
Uh, mm -hmm. There are more than a million LGBT veterans, and although we don't know for sure how many are in VA, if they come to the VA at the same rate as other veterans come to the VA, there's between 400 and 500,000 LGBT veterans in VA. That's that's not a small group. No, it's not. It's a really very significant, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and. Uh, you know, these folks, we know from research, come to VA, if they come to VA, come to VA expecting to be treated with prejudice and discrimination. They come expecting the same kind of treatment that they got when they were in the military. A, a lot of veterans, including LGBT veterans, uh, see uh, no disconnect between the military and the VA, and they, they think that the same policies that were in effect when they were in the military are also in effect in the VA, and that the VA has some ban on, or has had some ban on care for LGBT veterans. Not true, that's never been true, um, but veterans come in to our doors expecting that kind of treatment. So we've got a higher hurdle to overcome, to let them know that they're welcome, and to provide them good, high-quality care. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna let's let's talk a little bit more um, about that. In 2011, that's when you were saying things really started to change, and they started to change uh, very rapidly. It, and and it seems like what you just what you were just saying is that um, that folks in the LGBT community had a feeling that they that they might not be treated um, very well within within the VA. But you're also um, seem to be saying that well at least the work that you that that you're that you're doing here um, belies that. Um, we know that veterans come to the VA for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's their only alternative. Um, we know veterans who come to the VA tend to be older. They have uh, more uh, medical and mental health conditions. They are more likely to have a disability, more likely to have a low income. Um, and uh, uh, some of those folks are LGBT veterans, just like non-LGBT veterans come to the VA. Um, so folks come to the VA sometimes not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to. We want veterans to come to the VA because they want to. And so we want to communicate to that larger population out there that um, not only can we treat your health care conditions, but we want to treat your health care conditions, and we welcome LGBT people in our doors. Uh, when I started um, my career in the VA in, in 1992, um, and I voiced my interest in doing sexuality, sexual health work, because I thought it was important, uh, I was I was told by folks in VA and at my facility, later in national leadership, that you know uh, that was great. It, uh, wasn't going to be strongly supported. That was not the priority. 
there were other priorities at the time. Not that that folks were really hostile to this idea, just non-supportive. And um, they did clearly communicate that if I wanted to focus on this area, that was probably going to slow my career. <laughs> I didn't oh. listen. <laughs> I didn't listen <laughs> because that's not what I wanted to do. And I felt this was right. important. And one of the things that I've learned in the VA is persistence counts. And mm -hmm. if you hammer away at your message uh, to everyone who will listen, eventually somebody will listen and the right people will listen. And you can make an opportunity for yourself. And some of that opportunity had to wait for times to change. Um, you know, there's been a significant change in attitudes around LGBT people in our society. Um, I, I, one of the, the major ones that I think shifted change was the Supreme Court's decision to ban sodomy laws in the states in 2003, and then later the Supreme Court decision uh, allowing gay marriages. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, as I said earlier, I think the, the biggest shift in VA occurred when uh, military uh, uh, policy changed around don't ask, don't tell. Uh, that suddenly allowed um, for a different way of, of seeing things within VA. VA had already decided to release the transgender healthcare policy. There wasn't an equivalent policy on healthcare for veterans who identified as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. But um, you know, both of those events kind of worked together to uh, move things forward in VA pretty rapidly. And I'm so pleased to have been positioned at that point where I could take advantage of that movement. Mm, right. And let's say so you and Dr. Jolene Shepard are the directors for the VHA LGBT health program. So tell us about um, the role in the program itself. Yeah, um, we're a young program uh, and very small. Uh, as I said, we've only been established since 2012. We have one FTE uh, that Jillian and I split in the shared role of director. Uh, we have uh, a couple of support staff who are employed uh, by contract, so they're temporary employees. Even so, uh, we've done a lot in the last uh, six years that I'm quite proud of. Our office uh, responds to queries from the field about policy, uh, queries from Congress, uh, queries from the public, veterans who are wanting to know more about services that are available, queries from uh, media, from the newspapers who want to do stories on uh, work about work that the VA is doing. Uh, we also oversee the, uh, two healthcare policies, the um, current transgender healthcare directive that was just reissued this year, and a uh, new uh, healthcare directive for veterans who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual that was uh, uh, issued for the first time last year in 2017. We also develop a variety of support resources for clinicians to implement those policies, including two 
uh, clinical support programs for transgender health care, uh, a scan echo program, and an e-consultation program. Scan echo is a complicated acronym. It's not worth going through what it what it means. What what it is is a training program that uh, uh, links um, remote clinicians who are more generalists with experts in an area and trains those remote experts uh, in kind of a uh, mini specialty. There are, I think, 11 scan echo programs. The transgender scan echo program is one of those 11. Um, I think we were the first national ones, and, and we train uh, healthcare providers in um, medical centers and in the CBOX and in the small facilities in how to do transgender healthcare. Currently, our, the training program is a six-session, twice-a-month for three-month uh, program that's done through video conferencing, and it's all case-based consultation. The e-consultation uh, program uh, allows for clinicians anywhere in the system through the medical record system to submit an inter-facility e-consult on transgender healthcare through the patient's record, and it'll get routed to one of three experienced teams of providers, uh, depending on where that facility is. And uh, that experienced team will respond to the clinician's question, or usually there are multiple questions, uh, within a, a week. Uh, both of those programs have been very successful. The LGBT health program uh, overall also uh, develops um, uh, online trainings uh, for clinicians and staff to be more aware about LGBT veteran health and to implement our current healthcare policies. Uh, and we oversee the LGBT uh, veteran care coordinators. And this is a relatively new program um, every facility has identified at least one LGBT veteran care coordinator. There, I think currently there's 176 uh, LGBT mm. veteran care coordinators. Their job at the local level is to uh, identify the clinical needs of LGBT veterans at the facility. Um, where there are gaps in services, work to address those gaps, a liaison with uh, LGBT community groups and veteran groups that are interested in LGBT issues, um, and generally work with the facility to create a more welcoming, uh, responsive environment for LGBT veterans. So when those uh, LGBT veterans come through our doors, wherever they that wherever that facility is, they feel like they belong here and that they can get uh, the health care that they need um, to address their needs. Um, I think uh, of all of the things that we've done, uh, creating these LGBT veteran care coordinators is probably the thing that's, that's most likely to endure and really change the system of care. We've got 176 uh, people on the front lines of clinical care in the VA who are actively working 
to change the cultural environment at their facility. Uh, and they're doing some really amazing things um, in putting up posters to raise awareness and holding events at their facility to raise awareness and to encourage LGBT veterans to uh, uh, get services. And that is, that is changing the culture of VA at the local level. So we're really taking kind of a, a top-down and a bottom-up approach to uh, create change within our system. Uh, and it really uh, means a lot to me to, to be able to do that. I'm so proud of the work that we're, we're doing. You, you mentioned my um, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award uh, from APA, which I'm very pleased to receive. But both Jillian and I are also going to be recognized uh, in October uh, at the Gay Lesbian Medical Association Conference with uh, their 2018 Achievement Award for the work that we're doing in the VA on LGBT veteran health care. Wow, good on you. Good on both of you. <laughs> Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, the I know um, we have worked here at the the Denver um, VA with um, the LGBT coordinator, Dr. Shelby Scott, um, and uh, actually did a podcast with her and the work that that she's doing. Uh, and so this, you know, here we've been able to. Um, and see hands on what what you know is going on and what great work is happening through this program. One of the things that you talked about in the beginning was um, a feeling of not belonging and but one of the things that you're not proud of is is what I gather um more of a sense of belonging is there yeah. a a anecdote, a story, or something that, that demonstrates the change that you've noticed, or that you brought uh, about, really? Um, yeah, I, um, we haven't kind of evaluated um, uh, patients' response to these changes systematically, but we hear mm -hmm. a lot of anecdotes from uh, clinicians. and. Uh, about change that patients are seeing in the system. And it's really powerful. One um, that comes to mind is a primary care physician who was working, I believe, at a facility in Montana who's worked with this uh, female veteran for a few years and thought he knew her well uh, and thought he was providing her great health care. And they're sitting in his office talking, and, and uh, she looks at the monitor uh, of his computer and sees the We Serve All Who Serve um, LGBT awareness campaign uh, image on the screensaver of his monitor. And said, she said to him, um, I want you to know I'm a lesbian. <laughs> and he mm -hmm. was caught a little off guard because he had never asked this question and hadn't thought about this issue and felt a little embarrassed and she told him it was because he had the screensaver on his monitor that we serve all who serve poster that made her feel comfortable enough to out herself to mm. him 
And it, right. it, uh, it seems like a small thing, you know, putting up a poster, putting a screensaver on your monitor, wearing a lapel pin with a, a rainbow on it. But it's a very important message that communicates to marginalized people uh, that they are uh, recognized and they're welcome. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, the, the rainbow lanyards, the, the posters up and about, and the screensavers um, promote a, a sense of safety, a, a sense of you right. belong. Right. LGBT people go go into environments uh, looking for signs and symbols that show they're welcome someplace. A generic environment is not welcoming. Uh, the mm. assumption from marginalized people is that every environment is safe for the majority, but not necessarily mm -hmm. safe for them. Right. So really, is is, is this um, this extra step this to let folks, marginalized folks, as you say, know that they're safe, and mm -hmm. to do it symbolically right. or just to say that that you're safe. Right. Um, the that that idea that the VA serves all who serve um, is such a great um, summation of of an idea. How do you know where that came from? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have to credit uh, a longtime VA employee, Lisa Red. Uh, for coming up with the slogan, uh, Lisa uh, at the time was the um, kind of acting director of the newly formed Office of Health Equity. It was just that office was just forming at the same time our office was forming. Lisa was also on our communications work group around um, the the rollout of the transgender healthcare policy. Uh, so she was very involved in, in helping us put together these um, awareness campaign messages. And this We Serve All Who Served poster was the very first uh, communications product that we put out. Uh, and we're very, very pleased with it. Uh, it mm -hmm. It's been a message that uh, is enduring. <laughs> Uh, it is. So we continue to use it uh, since it came out in 2013. Yeah, it is. It, it sums it all up, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to touch briefly. Um, I first came to know you um, when we you were the director of the education program, or the yeah the education program for the Myrex, and um, I worked here at the the Denver and the Rocky Mountain Myrex. Um, can you? Sometimes it's well, it's not an uh, unusual for somebody to say to me. What is uh, MyRec? And oftentimes they you know, mispronounce that rather awkward acronym. I mean, um, and so 
could you, you've been at this a lot longer than yeah. I have. Can you, what would you, what do you tell people? What yeah. is a MIREC? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a MIREC, a mental illness research education and clinical center is a, is a specialized mental health uh, center that was designed to uh, create new knowledge about mental illness and its effective treatment and to actively work to get that new knowledge into routine clinical care through education. So the, the Myrick concept, uh, and I, I want to credit Dr. Tom Horvath, who's the grandfather of, of the Myricks, for uh, promoting, advocating, getting money for the, these uh, centers. Uh, these were conceived, one, to fund mental health research because uh, there was just, you know, a lack of funding for mental health research in the 1980s and the, and the early 1990s, and to serve as a translational center to quickly get that new knowledge into routine practice, to solve the problem of the long length, the years that it takes for new published research to find its way into routine clinical practice. Um, uh, the MIREX began um, being funded in uh, the late 1990s. Um, the South Central MIREX that I work for was in the, the second round of, of um, proposals uh, that were reviewed and funded. Uh, and eventually 10 MIREX uh, now are, are fully funded. And there are five or six or so uh, sister mental health centers of excellence that function a lot like Myrex with a, a similar kind of mission, a little different focus. Some of these are um, uh, focused on uh, alcohol and substance abuse like the C-State. And then there's the much older uh, center, the National Center for PTSD, which is uh, viewed as, you know, one, the original um, kind of mental health uh, center of excellence. And um, back in, in my day, soon after our MIREC was funded, uh, VA Central Office asked me to lead a group of uh, the education directors for all of the uh, MIRECs. At that time, there were only six and no other sister organizations besides the National Center for, for PTSD. Central Office viewed the education cores as kind of the, the common link uh, or the, uh, the foundation that, that linked all of these other centers that were doing slightly different things. They had a different focus, maybe a different methodology, working more in basic science versus uh, working on uh, mental health interventions and testing those, or working with specific populations. But the common link the central office thought were the education cores that worked to uh, make education work better and to disseminate information to clinicians. And so I uh, led that group for many years. We shared work that we were doing, uh, tried not to duplicate efforts. We built uh, uh, education products as a group and shared them along with the education products that we built within our own centers. Uh, in the very early days, we held a number of um, uh, MIREC conferences to meet and share the work that we're doing across our centers. Um, uh, and it, 
was a very fulfilling role. I loved working uh, with that group, and I, I missed them dearly. Um, it uh, was a, a very dynamic, energetic group. I, I view working with the Myricks as working with kind of the best and the brightest within uh, VA. These are really elite um, VA employees or um, trained and versed in research and uh, in good clinical care. Well, yeah. The uh, now I and everyone who listens to this podcast will know exactly what a Myrick is and um, <laughs> how to how to, to to say it out loud. So that's great for me. Um, so you you know you've got this lifetime achievement award, um, but you still have, as you said all of this other um, work ahead of you, things that you're excited about. And so you know, kind of as we're starting to wrap up, just wanted to know where do you see the VA going? Where do we go from here? Uh, that, that's a great question. I, I wish I had a crystal ball so I could uh, see the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to, to say, I hope the VA continues to move in the direction that we've, we've been going. And being a leader in LGBT veteran healthcare and a model for other federal agencies, and I think a model for uh, community healthcare organizations. And I hope that we can continue to focus, focus even more on uh, sexual health issues not just reducing sexual risk like the HIV programs are doing, and they do a wonderful job, but focusing also on health and wellness and sexual functioning. Uh, sexuality, uh, sexual functioning is a part of most of our lives, including veterans' lives. Uh, uh, and uh, it's, it's an area that we have long neglected uh, as being maybe less important or maybe it just makes us all uncomfortable and so we don't talk about it at all. <laughs> but if we're really practicing uh, patient-centered care, then we need to take care of the whole person in all parts of their lives. And sexuality, sexual health, sexual relationships are part of the person's life. And so I, I hope that even more than we have done yet, uh, we can focus on sexual health and wellness in the future. Um, the current politics of the day remind me, and I hope they remind others, that we cannot take uh, civil rights and the protections that we have to date for granted, that we have to continually fight to reinforce the value of those rights. Uh, and I remind um, patients or staff who bring this up with me What's going to happen in the future? Is something going to change? I, I don't know. Nothing has changed yet uh, in VA, and we're going to continue to push things forward as we have been doing. But it's also important that uh, patients and staff as citizens let their elected officials know what's important to them. I think that's, um, uh, that's something that all of us should do. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, any any closing comments? So, 
uh, you wrap things up very well there, but anything else you'd like to say? Uh, I, I, I think I've touched on a lot of the things that I wanted to say. I, you know, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award has made me think about my career in a way that I hadn't before, uh, which is kind of nice. Um, uh, and I've realized some some themes that have come up in, in my career, some of which I've mentioned already. You know, it's important to be persistent, fight for the things that you believe in, talk to everyone that you know <laughs> about things that you believe are important that we should be doing. And eventually people will listen, or the right person will listen. And I view that as part of making your own opportunities. I'm an active opportunist. I um, I think it's important that if you're going to make changes, if you can do the best that you can in the work that you're doing, you need to step up and, and step out a little bit and uh, take on new tasks that may make you uncomfortable. Um, but often those new tasks, those new roles may provide you exactly the opportunity that you're looking for to do something even bigger. Wow, yes, <laughs> very well said. And um, I guess it made me think that I am going to look forward to um, you being the recipient, the first recipient of a second Lifetime Achievement <laughs> Award. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, and, uh, you know, so let me go into my closing. Uh, that can be it for the R. Myrick Short Takes podcast today. We appreciate everyone for listening, uh, especially Michael for taking the time to be with us. It's so great to hear about your work here at the VA and what you've done for veterans and what you've done for marginalized communities. As always, you can reach out to us with any comments, any questions about today's episode. episode. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, give us a review, and share it with your colleagues. Join us next time for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention.